Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Brian Reed, I was going to ask you to open in prayer, but is it too late to do that? I walked in late. It is? (laughs) I love it. That's great. I just picture you opening in prayer, you know what I mean? It's in my... <laughs> he's already, he was, he's got his Bible on his lap, and he's, yeah. it's, okay. it's okay. It's not like a command from above or anything. It's just... Okay, let's take a couple of moments. Congratulations, Sylvia. Yeah. Okay. Grandma. Um, Father, we're very grateful for what you're doing in our midst, because the more we understand that all of our salvation and livingness is your activity, the more we rest in your love, the more we have confidence in your purpose and plan, the more we have hope, a firm hope of what is to come, and that it's going to be glorious and going to be phenomenal. In fact, Grant us your vision to see things as you see them so that we can see that a lot of things that we look for are already realities in your view. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The subject for I don't know how many times in a row is predestination and universal divine promeity. That's a title. You can go on a research project and see if that's been the title of many messages lately. But predestination and universal divine promeity. We'll also be going to a few other passages tonight. This is a remarkably important doctrine. According to Barth, that's Karl Barth, and I'm going to be referring a little bit to him tonight. Karl Barth, pronounced Barth a Swiss theologian of some fame. It's become sort of a badge of honor if you've read all of his church dogmatics, and I haven't yet, but I did back into Thomas Aquinas and read all of the Summa Theologia, at least the parts that he wrote. I backed into St. Thomas Aquinas by going first to Lonergan, And I'm kind of backing into Karl Barth by other people who are interpreting his words. And we're going to show a couple of those tonight. According to Barth, all humanity is derivatively elect in Christ. That's that's a really summarizing of what he believes about divine election. Now, derivatively simply means that we derive our election from Christ, and therefore all people are in Christ derivatively and I have to define terms sometimes because I have to if I have to look it up then I have to tell you about it all according to Barth all humanity is derivatively elect in Christ this phrase from a theologian named Oliver Crisp Oliver Crisp's chapter on Karl Barth in a book called All Shall Be Well, edited by Gregory MacDonald, which is a pen name for Robin Perry, which many theologians 
write on the subject of universal salvation, all shall be well. In his chapter, he succinctly states what I consider to be not only Bartian, the Bartian, but the biblical upshot of the doctrine of election. Jesus Christ is God's foreknown and elect one. Isaiah 42.1 defines him as eclectos in the Septuagint. Luke 9.35, Luke 23.35, 1 Peter 2.4 are a number of verses where he is referred to as the elect one. And as the elect one, we know him as a single inclusive representative of all humanity. So Jesus Christ is God's foreknown and elect one, foreknown, 1 Peter one twenty, and all of humanity is foreknown and elected in him. This truth is the demolition of the terrible doctrine, to use Moltmann's phrase, of a double predestination, which states that some human beings are predestined to be saved and others predestined to be damned. Jesus Christ himself, however, was the damned in a different take on a double predestination. Jesus Christ himself was the damned in his crucifixion and death. Jesus Christ, the crucified, is the elect in his resurrection, which is for our justification. That is, for the justification of all human beings, putting Romans 4.25 and 5.18 together. So, again, there is a double predestination, but it's all in Jesus Christ. He becomes the reprobated one, or the one whom God rejected, in his crucifixion, he becomes the one whom God elected in his resurrection. And that's the Bartian, and I think, scriptural doctrine on the case. Now, in describing what he calls an open universalism, and there are four kinds of universalism, at least, or three, I guess, that Jürgen Moltmann interprets in his famous book, The Coming of God. And if you have that book and you have a difficulty reading it, then just read the chapter called The Restoration of All Things, and you'll find an immense amount of Christian eschatology there. And so what I'm doing here, obviously, is collaborating with other theologians to have a theology that makes some sense here. Jürgen Moltmann interprets Barth's idea of predestination like this. Listen carefully. Because in the crucified Christ, God has taken upon himself the rejection of sinful men and women in order to give them his grace, this Christological predestination must be understood as a double predestination. There is rejection, and there is the one who is rejected. Christ, who on the cross became sin for us. We know that's 2 Corinthians 5.21. And a curse. 
Someone becoming sin and a curse means that he's damned, essentially. But he goes on to say, and a curse, as Paul says, so that we might be saved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ manifests that universal rejection has been overcome by election, which applies equally, universally, to all human beings. Predestination, that's our subject and has been for three or four times now, predestination does not mean a symmetry of yes and no, electing and rejecting. It means the asymmetry of a yes, which proceeds out of the confuted or the decisively refuted no. And I love the way he put it there because Jesus Christ is the yes of God to all human beings. Yes of God to all human beings. So I include, or let's say this, my responsibility is then to enter into the discussion, and I conclude that in the doctrine of predestination, we are to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, as usual. In the doctrine of predestination, we are to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. Because into his image, God predestined all of humanity to be conformed. Take this message along with the two that preceded it if you're going to get the fuller thought. So Jesus Christ is God's promity in person. Jesus Christ, his very incarnation, his very existence, his very being is God saying yes to all of humankind. For in him all the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 to 21. In Jesus Christ, God is for us. In Jesus Christ, God is for all. Romans 8, 31, 8, 32. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Specifically, in the cross, though that entails all of the incarnation and his life of obedience, his life of obedience to God's command that all be saved, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Therefore, the world has been reconciled to God. Is that difficult? So, a little sense of humor here. I hope you're ready for it. Crisp, crisply interprets Bart. That means with some emphasis and clarity. And he said this, and this again is in the book that was edited by Gregory MacDonald. Robin Perry took that cleverly, that name, that pen name, which when he was an evangelical, it was wise to use somebody else's name, but he chose an old universalist, named Gregory of Nyssa, and a new universalist named George MacDonald, who was also a famous Scottish universalist in the modern era, 
and put them together and got Gregory McDonald. But it was really Robin Perry. So then, if I ever write a book on universalism and pass it out in fundamental circles, it will be Universalism by Donald Duck. So, but crisp, oh man, this is terrible. Crisp, crisply interprets Barth, and he says this, quote, For Barth, Christ's work is appropriated now not by repentance and salvation, which is the traditional Reformation model of conversion. Listen very carefully to this, because this will give you an idea what the church's mission really is, and it will show you that a lot of mission, so-called, isn't really Christian mission. Let me say this again. For Bart, these are other interpreters of Bart. Now, I know if I ever had 10 years to take off, I'd probably read all of Bart. But he writes this, for Bart, Christ's work is appropriated now, not by repentance and salvation, but by the agents coming to realize that he or she is already saved now. By the prior act of God in Christ, then at the cross. I say, what about the verses repent and Received forgiveness and the rest of that in Acts 2.38. Don't you have to put that in the context of a people facing the demolition of their city, Jerusalem, and requiring a conversion to prevent that happening to them. But I'm going to say this again because this is the most controversial point. This is not fluffy universalism. For Barth, Christ's work is appropriated now, not by repentance and salvation, but by the agents coming to realize that he or she is already saved now by the prior act of God in Christ, then at the cross. Now, when I read stuff like this, I don't say, oh, I accept that because Karl Barth wrote it. I say, does the scripture square with this? Does this square with the scripture? Well, he lets Barth speak for himself then, and he quotes him from the most famous volume in his church dogmatics. It's called CD 2-2. Every seminary student that's worth his salt or her salt knows what that means. Church dogmatics, volume 2, section 2. And he quotes, so Crisp lets Barth speak here. And from this section on page 318 in church dogmatics, 2-2. This then, this is Barth speaking in his own writing, this then is the message with which the elect community, as the circumference of the elect man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I'm going to stop right there because the church, by definition, is the circumference of the elect man, Jesus Christ. They are people who are derivatively elect in him and know it. So this then is the message with which the elect community, that's you and me, has to approach every man. And we mean every human. He, he spoke in that 
old-fashioned way of just saying man and meaning men and women, of course. The promise that he, too, is an elect man. Let me read that again. This, then, is the message with which the elect community, as the circumference of the elect man, Jesus of Nazareth, has to approach every man. The promise that he, too, is an elect man. I know, it's a little shocking at first, but clarifying this further, this is why I said crisp, crisply does this. He wrote this. The derivatively elect community is the catalyst used by providence for activating and awakening what we might call the sleepers. Those who are unaware of their derivatively elect status in Christ. You know what that is? It's evangelism. And I've been saying it for quite a long time now because it's from simply Ephesians 5.14. Awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The idea here is that Christ will shine on you means Christ will make you aware that you're in him already. You need to wake up to it. I know your mind immediately goes to the atheist, the Muslim, the every other kind of person. Well, whatever person you're thinking of, they are derivatively elect in Christ. So I would say, in fact, the Bible does call such unaware people sleepers. In Ephesians 5.14, where we find the missionary call of the church being this. Wake up and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In keeping with this, then, to return, and I'm doing this on purpose. I needed to do this. I was too tired to do it yesterday after I wrote a bunch of things. But I had to do it today to, to quote these things so this thing will cohere as a message for you tonight. In keeping with this, to return now, see, I'm going from Bart to Crisp to Moltman to, to, to Bart again to Moltman again, to return to Moltman's description of Bart's doctrine. Moltman continues the paragraph that I began to quote to you before, and he says this Because Christ has borne the sins of the world, and the whole of rejection. On the cross, all human beings are in Christ objectively reconciled, whether they know it or not. Through faith, they experience themselves subjectively as reconciled. So when God awakens them to faith, using the catalyst of the church's message, then they begin to experience themselves. And he finally closes the paragraph with this. It follows that a Christian can only view other people as those who have been reconciled in Christ. He cannot take the disbelief of others more seriously than the fact of their being reconciled with God. Think about all the times we did that. We take their disbelief more seriously than the fact 
act of their reconciliation to God, which they are unaware of. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do I dare to leap to the conclusion that therefore the world is reconciled to God? I think I'm forced to. I think that's a forced conclusion. It's a conclusion to which we are forced. Now, I'm going to get scripture here. I already have. But to me, this adds a peculiar significance to faith. This doesn't make faith nothing. This makes faith really something, really a privilege and a privileged status, faith. So to me, this adds a, partic- a peculiar significance to faith. Faith, though not the means of our justification, is nevertheless the means of understanding that not only myself, but all of humanity has been reconciled to God in Christ. Through faith, we understand. Hebrews 11.3, through faith, we understand. So blessed are those who have been gifted with faith then. Not because by it they've been justified. Christ's faithfulness has done that. But because by faith they understand. In Hebrews 11.3. By the Spirit, through faith, They experience their reconciliation with God, which we might call subjective reconciliation. That's why Paul goes on to say, and it was used to mystify me, well, if God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, why does Paul turn around and say, so we say be reconciled to God? It's not because they haven't been reconciled to God, but they need to wake up to the fact that they're reconciled to God. In other words, you are objectively reconciled to God in the Christ event. So be reconciled. Reconciled to God, we urge you, beg you, be reconciled to God means be reconciled with the idea and the reality that you're reconciled. You say, but that doesn't change people's lives. Yes, it does. There's another dialogue I've got with some of the people from origin all the way on. Almost all the old universalists and half or at least half of the new ones. And I'm not in their camp. Because they say, even though we believe this, we can't teach this because people will take it as a license to sin. And I do not agree with that. In fact, I strenuously disagree. Because if the message we're teaching is the gospel, then it has a sanctifying effect. Hiding people from the word and the fullness of the word of God doesn't cause a license to sin. In fact, it's quite the contrary. But that's another That's another dialogue I've got with these, a dialectic. So we need a dialectic theology. We need to talk with other theologians and other things that have been said and use the scriptures to sometimes refute and sometimes agree. I do not agree with many of the modern universalists and old-time universalists from origin to Ariogena, many of them, who believe that hell isn't real or forever, but there is a kind of hell and it lasts as long as God can convince people to believe. But that makes believing the condition, doesn't it? So this eventuality that they want to put forward is you picture some guy that you want to pray for or some lady that you want to pray for for ages 
you ain't talking thousands of years in the future. God's got a strong arm into finally believing and repenting. And that's the notion that comes across in people that call themselves universalists. So when you say, I'm a universalist, be careful. I don't just say it. I'd rather say, I believe in the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. It's all a Christological doctrine to me. It's all Christ. Our old friend Mike Bovey was right. By the Spirit, through faith, we experience the reconciliation with God, and this means the same faith, by the same faith, we come to discern the universal scope and horizon of reconciliation. Again, by the same faith, we come to discern the universal scope and horizon of reconciliation. If you discern the universal scope of God's saving work in Christ, that's because you've received a gift of faith. You've been awakened to it. It's a gift of faith. And that's the result. That horizon of reconciliation is the result of the love of God in Christ Jesus and of the love of Christ Jesus in God. Romans 8.35 and 8.39 closes with nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Then we'll be done with Romans. So, when I came to that conclusion, I said this, blessed are those who believe, does not mean damned are those who don't. Now, because according to Thesis 33 in Barth's CD 2-2, God has determined himself for sinful humanity and humanity for himself. When did he determine this? In eternity, before time. Time is a creation. Time is a created reality. Before time, we remember we studied that before, supralapsarianism versus infralapsarianism, which is the logical order of the divine decrees. And according to Barth, and I check, I'm checking this in the scripture, before God even decreed to create everything, he decreed to elect Jesus Christ for all human beings and all human beings in Christ. So that's a supralapsarian Christology. And it turns out that Barth's supralapsarian Christology just might be a biblical supralapsarian Christology. One thing that attracted me to Karl Barth, even when... People who never read him, and I heard this in Bible school, and I heard this from many people who used to be my teachers. They would say, Karl Barth is a neo-Orthodox, and they'd dismiss him. And I used to think, well, if he's a neo-Orthodox, I can't. Then I thought, what the hell's a neo-Orthodox? And the old Orthodox were the patristic theologians who were universalists, so they were scared. But the guy quotes more scripture on a page than they did in 25 sermons. So I was, and I was secondly, I began to be attracted by Karl Barth's 
intense Christocentricity. His really, he's really Christocentric. He doesn't just say, I'm a Christocentric person. He is radically Christocentric. That is the second drawing card. And then, because it's always wise, if you are forbidden as an adult with free will, if you're forbidden to read other things than your own pastors, then the best thing to do is read other things. But, now because God has determined himself for sinful humanity and humanity for himself. Now Barth says that this is the first activity of God, is his election of his son. But because he did it in eternity, it's, the doctrine has to be called supralapsarian, S-U-P-R-A-L-A-P-S-A-R-I-A-N. By supralapsarian is meant that God's self-determination and his election of all human beings in Christ preceded any other of his acts, including the creation of time and the creation of all created reality. And it even preceded the decree and the resolve to create so it is a supralapsarian Christology, we might say. That's theology. I told you I was going to get theological. But does this pass the test of Scripture? Now, I say yes. When I say I, I'm not making any deal of me. I'm just saying when I say I say, it's merely me taking responsibility for coming to a conclusion and not just riding on the coattails of a theologian. So... I read that all the time in Aquinas. He would say, I say this, and that meant I'm taking responsibility for this doctrine. Now, an intriguing thing happened to Thomas Aquinas. When he was 47, he died. On the verge of his death, he had a vision during a church service, a mass, I guess you'd call it. He had a vision, and at the end of that vision, he said, everything I've ever written is straw. Now, that means a lot of people want to reject everything he ever wrote, which would be insane. I would reject about 30% of what he wrote. But I think what he saw is what you're seeing right now, the universal divine promeity. So a lot of the stuff he wrote about damnation and the damnation body and the stuff he got from Augustine and a lot of the stuff that he bantered about, he saw burned up. I think what he had was that experience of God testing every man's work and burning it up. And I think he over-exaggerated by saying everything he ever wrote was straw because a lot that he wrote was not straw that burned up in the fire. I think, and it's a, this is a guess, I think he saw the universal horizon of God's salvation and said, oh, man, I wasted a lot of time. He didn't waste all his time. Now, don't get me wrong, Summa Theologia is still a worthy read, and there's so much there. I learned a method of thinking from him that's much more important than the content of his doctrine. And that's what I've been going on ever since, and I learned it from Lonergan and Insight and a lot of other things. So this is extremely important to me. Because superlapsarian Christology does pass the test of Scripture. So I would ask myself, does this pass the test of Scripture? And then I would say, yes, and in many ways. 
and in many passages. I'm going to take you to a couple of them. Prominent among the many passages that we could cite in favor of this thesis is Ephesians 1.3. Look at that. You've read it a thousand times, but maybe not in this context. Ephesians 1.3. And I'm going to ex- accent certain phrases because of what our, we're teaching now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Look at verse 4. For he chose us, elected us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love. Some people put that at the end of verse 4, others at the beginning of verse 5, doesn't matter. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. In the beloved. He favored us with this grace in the beloved by including us in the elect one. And we could fan this out forever, but that's all I want to give you for now. First Peter is another one. Peter didn't fall off the train here. First Peter one eighteen. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world. Destined, foreknown is another translation, might even be better, but was revealed at the end of the times. You could say, at the end of the day. Tony, He was revealed at the end of the times for you, pro me, for you. Verse 21, I love this phrase, it's hardly ever considered, who through him are believers in God, who through him are believers in God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. How about 1 Peter 2, 4? Coming to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen, elect, and valuable to God. Who is the elect one? Christ. Who is the foreknown one? Christ. Who is the predestined one? Christ. And is it true? that in Christ all will be made alive, then if that's true, and it most emphatically is, then all were elected in Christ before God even decreed to create anything. So and then I have to ask the question, where's the condition that has to be met by me? If he made that decision in eternity before time, what condition have I got to meet in time for purpose and a determination that was made before time. I was never able to really give my true testimony in previous 
places where I was because you know what it was? My testimony is really the experience of being awakened to the fact that I'm in Christ and being given faith. So that didn't square with any place I've ever been. (laughs) And so I couldn't really... So I'd say I believed in Christ because I did and started to grow in grace and that, you know, which is a testimony, but it's not the full story. Now, coming to him, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and, valu- and valuable to God is a quote of Psalm 118.22. And to that, I would reply with Psalm 118.23. And I know Ricky knows this one. It says... This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, in our eyes, eyes that have been enlightened. It is marvelous in our eyes. The rejected stone is made the head of the corner, which sums up the whole. I love the word the Lord's doing, Yahweh's doing, God's doing. It's God's doing. It's God's will. It's God's doing. It's God's purpose. It's God's determination. It's God's perseverance, not yours. So it is marvelous because it's the Lord's doing. And to that, I would add something. Verses started to stack up here. It is the Lord's doing or God's doing, says 1 Corinthians one thirty. It is God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus. No, it isn't. It's my decision. No, it's God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Who for us became wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And to take us back to a series of messages done not too long ago, in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians, it's all in order that, as the scripture says, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Moreover, God made the one who did not know sin, listen to this, God made the one who knew no sin, To be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 So again, and I never do this, but you actually may say this if you wish in a responsive reading of the scriptures. Let us all say... This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. I know you're shy. Let's say it. Say it. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Go to sleep on that. It's even better than my pillow. You'll sleep well. On top of these sublime verses of the good word of God, I just love Hebrews 6, 5, because it, it just says we have tasted of the good word of God. It's a, isn't it a good word? Taste and see that the Lord is 
good, benevolent, beneficent. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Then grow in grace. On top of these, I call them sublime verses of the good word of God, there's the passage to which we have been continually drawn, at least I'm continually drawn back to this. Every day or so, every time I sit down, continually drawn to this. Keep mentioning it, keep drawn to it. And it's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. So we already did 1, 3 to 6. Look at verse 9. And I have never come to a complete translation of it, but listen to this translation. It's a chock-full passage. In it we see, among other things, a superlapsarian Christology. So the answer is, is there a superlapsarian Christology and a universal promedi in the, the actual scriptures as, they, as we let them speak? I'm talking about Ephesians 1, starting at verse 9, but I'm going all the way through verse 11. This is, again, my, I've been working on this translation for at least 10 years, and it's, it's not full yet, so have mercy on me. God revealed to us the mystery of his will, says verse 9. According to the, listen to this now, it's eudokia, and I actually had a memory of reading this when I read Ernst Kasemann's Romans 1980, his Romans exposition, and he defined this word good pleasure as this word dianoia. Or, no, it's eudokia, I'm sorry, eudokia. And I actually saw it in my mind, and then I went to, and I said, this is going to take another hour out of my study today. And I went and found the book and opened it, and it was right there. It was right, I wrote up on the side of the page, exactly right there. And the word means this. According to, quote, the, the pleasure which exerts itself graciously. So it's not just God's good pleasure. I want to do this. It's his good pleasure to be gracious. He can't. The, the thing that gives God the, his kicks, if we want to say it that way, is to be gracious. And so he defined that because he said this word, eudokia, for good pleasure in the scripture, God's good pleasure, comes from the Koine Greek, but the Koine Greek as it is influenced by Judaism at the time. And he quotes a couple of Sirach verses, et cetera, et cetera. But listen to the translation now. Back it up. God revealed to us or made known to us the mystery of his will. According to the pleasure which exerts itself graciously, which he intended in Christ. So in eternity, before time, God intended this in Christ. What is it? In other words, this is God's first resolution. Aristotle had a famous maxim, and it was this. What is last in execution is first in resolution. God did not first resolve a last judgment. He first resolved to sum up everything in Christ. So that's the last thing that God will execute is the summary of everything in Christ, not a last judgment. A last judgment is the second to the last thing on the way to making all things new for eternal life in participation with God. So last judgment is, one of the, is the second best news of the future because it's a judgment by saving and it's a saving by judgment. But that's all. We got a lot more to say. And every time I say these things, I realize how much more work we got to do. 
and I got to do. Back up and go again. God revealed to us the mystery of his will according to the pleasure which exerts itself graciously, which he intended in Christ. Verse 10, for the plan of salvation. Again, the word oikonomia is used here. Dispensation or administration is often translated. But in the Gingrich lexicon, they termed this phrase oikonomia as the plan of salvation. So I have these, when you get the notes on this, if you want them, and they'll be on the website, I've put asterisks next to these two things to show where I got these translations. Verse 10, for the plan of salvation, which literally means when God finally fills his house. So why hasn't God come yet? Why hasn't Christ come yet? Because God doesn't have enough people to fill his house yet. You see, if, if he had come the way you wanted him to come, Sylvia, you wouldn't have, it wouldn't have included your grandchild. Go figure. She did that. I used to beg him to come, Lord Jesus, back in the 70s. Then I wouldn't have had my son, my daughter, and I wouldn't have had my grandsons. I wouldn't, you know, we went and had food at the Panda Express yesterday. Beef Beijing, 480 calories per bite. <laughs> Wouldn't have had that experience if Christ had come in 1978 when I begged him to. His house isn't full yet. Go into the hedges and the hedgerows and the everywhere and compel them to come in so that my house may be full, he said. His house is going to be full. That's what oikonomia means. So it means... When God finally fills his house. So if you're wondering why he's tarrying, there's a whole lot of people that haven't even been born yet that he wants in his house. Everybody you see, wherever you see them, are going to be in his house and feasting at his banquet. Everybody. Yes, even that person who cuts you off in traffic and flipped the bird to you and you got so mad you wanted to stop and bounce his head off the windshield of his car yes you'll be sharing at the messianic feast so and God finally fills his house in the simultaneity of all time in the fullness of all time means at that moment, God's going to make all times compressed into a single moment, and all humanity will be there all at once at the Messianic Feast, at the universal homecoming. That's what that means. So let me back up quickly. God revealed to us the mystery of his will according to the pleasure which exerts itself graciously, which he intended in Christ for the plan of salvation in the simultaneity of all time to recapitulate every being and everything in the Messiah, in the Messiah, in Christ. Whether beings and things in the heavens or beings and things on earth. That's a way of saying universally. Sum up all things universally in Christ. In him, verse 11, Jesus Christ, we were made his inheritance. That's how it should read. We were made his inheritance. 
Nobody's going to take his inheritance away from him. And that's you. You'll go to court and fight it. He already did. And won. In him, that is Jesus Christ, we were made his inheritance. Listen to this next phrase. Predestined. According to the purpose, prophesying, same word as in Romans 8.28. According to the purpose of the one who effectively executes everything according to the resolution of his will. First in resolution, sum up everything in Christ. Last in execution, sum up everything in Christ. God is not only great in counsel, he's mighty in his deed. Jeremiah 32, 19. Love, love, love that good word of God. Tastes so good, don't want to eat. Ate enough yesterday at Panda Express anyways. So, let me just conclude by saying something a little crude. It's time to put the marker RIP, rest in peace, over the grave of the doctrine and the notion and idea of a double predestination leading to a double outcome at the last judgment where some are damned and some are saved. We have come to the conclusion, though volumes could be written on this verse, that Romans 8.29 declares the predestination of all of humanity for conformity into the image of God's Son. A thing I heard one day from a friend of mine, perhaps you remember Barry Jeter. He led music in our ministry for many, many years. And he's told me one time, he's a brilliant artist. I have one of his paintings. Um, and an original. Um, don't rob my house, I'll shoot you. But anyways, he told me this. He said, when you're doing a painting, there's a time when you feel like you could add some more details, but it's done. It's done. Leave it. Leave it alone. It's a finished work of art. And I thought, and when I do a series, I do that because I think, man, I could go 80 miles an hour for the next 10 days on Romans 8, 29, but let's put the final touch on it. This series will be done very soon, and it'll be, we got another painting to put in the gallery, see? So that really helped me out a lot because you, you don't know when to stop. And that helped me out. So, Barry, wherever you are, we've taken two different paths in life. Wherever you are, good word. So then, I always wanted to ask you, are you related to Derek Jeter? Never mind. Um, so, the conclusion, I reach this conclusion that all of humanity is predestined for conformity into the image of God's Son. I reached it. You know how I did? By testing theological theses of other theologians. You know how else I did it? Exegesis of verses. Comparison with other passages of Scripture. Fitting it into the overwhelming testimony of all the Scripture. And this verse fits squarely in a doctrine of universal divine promeity. God, if I were to do a theology, systematic theology, I'd say God, deity, who exists in himself apart from all that he created and independent from all that he created, that's aseity, is nevertheless entirely for all that he created, and that's promeity. That's volume one of a systematic theology. 
Now, systematic theology, if I ever write one, and I'm at peace to maybe do that someday, the only thing that gave me peace is the word systematic doesn't mean a system. A systematic, according to the definition of the theological functional specialties of Bernard Lonergan, means simply a way of making understandable the things that we believe. It's a, it's a means of making understandable things about God and about the end time and about Christ and about eschatology. It's not a system. In fact, a systematic theology that I would ever write would not present another system, but it would be a presenting of an understanding of a, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the triune God, etc. But I'd start out with deity, aseity, and promity, and that would be the volume one, the doctrine of God. See that? It's scary, because that's a, it's coming together. That scares me. There's never been a systematic theology written from the standpoint of a universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. Never. Even Barth's, because Bart wasn't, he, if you talk to him, he'd say, are you a universalist? And he said, I teach universalism, and I don't teach universalism, and you want to shake him. Because he obviously did. And there's people that make these statements, and then they say, well, I don't want to, you know, to commit to it, but it needs to be done. And if I die, one of you can do it, or a team of you can do it. So then... God, deity, who exists in himself apart from all that he created and independent from all that he created, only creation is dependent upon God. He is nevertheless entirely for all that he created, promity, and he has graciously willed that all created reality be summed up gloriously in Jesus Christ, his son. Do you have a problem with that? Teacher, preacher, pope, cardinal, monsignor, bishop, Son of a bishop, do you have a problem with it? I don't. If we think, remember what we introduced in the beginning of 2019, Operation Epsilon, which simply means if we think, if we've been awakened to think eschatologically and Christologically, or even more simply, we've been awakened to see as God sees in some measure then we would see all of humanity simultaneously in Christ, with whom God is very pleased. Having been foreknown, called into existence in Christ Jesus, justified and glorified already. This is the love of God in Christ Jesus from which we can never be separated. What God has joined together, uh, you know that one. We belong to Christ unconditionally. So there is never a condition that could ever be met by which we could be separated from that love. No condition within us no condition without us. No things in the present, things in the past, things in the future. Nothing in life, nothing in death. Principalities and powers, 
How can they be against us when God has also predestined their conformity into the image of the Son? So when he asks who's going to do, who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect, he's saying every being is reconciled to God. So who is there left to make a charge against the elect? That's coming up. Painting's not yet done. Romans 8. So look at the verse now. This is where we've been. Romans 8, 29. Because those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, Jesus Christ, would be the firstborn among many siblings. We answered the question, does many mean all of humanity? And the answer is yes. And verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called into existence. As a new creation. And those he called into existence, meaning as a new creation, he also rectified, set right, justified. And those whom he rectified, he also glorified. You say, but I'm not glorified yet. You're not glorified yet. Yeah, but you're not seeing as God sees, are you? We are already glorified because we are in Christ, the Lord of glory whom they crucified. We are already glorified because we're in Christ, the Lord of glory, who is the glory of God, and because Christ, the Lord of glory, is in us as the hope of glory or the realized hope of glory. Doesn't mean we don't have a future of a glorified, deathless human body. We do. And I have some controversial things to say about that as you might have guessed, coming up. In a similar way, Paul calls Titus and the other emissaries with him the glory of Christ. They are the glory of Christ. Not they will be, they are the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 8.23. Romans 8.30 then is a kind of epitome of Operation Epsilon thinking. Because the aorist tenses there, which are timeless, compel the reader to see as God sees, to see all of humanity as already justified and glorified. Thank you, Father, for letting us see in a very tiny measure and obscurely as in a glass what you see. We look forward to being face to face and knowing as we are known and seeing the one whom we have studied so long and come to love. Because seeing him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. Father, I pray that you'll continue to encourage us because we are simply, very simply, the circumference of the elect man, Jesus Christ. Our message is one of phenomenal hope in which we see the world is already reconciled to Christ and love them as such. What a remarkable privilege we have to go out from here with that understanding granted by faith. And now, Father, we thank you.